We're in the book of Esther. You're joining us tonight for the first time. Uh, Wednesday nights, we go through the Old Testament verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. We've made our way to the story of Esther. Uh, We're in a time frame where it fits chronologically, biblically, between Ezra and Nehemiah. And last week, we, we got through the first couple of chapters, and as I said, it's really kind of, last week, the first two chapters really kind of set up the rest, the rest of the story. We met, we met several of the key players, if you would. Hazarus is the king at the time, also known as Xerxes. Um, the third in the line of succession of the Medo-Persian kings. Um, the, the children of Israel led off into captivity by the Babylonians, the southern tribes, the Nebuchadnezzar, the king at the time, a couple of kings after that, but then the Medo-Persians come into power. We talked of King Cyrus. He was the one that Daniel had brought to him the news that, you know, God Almighty, all-powerful, almighty, the true and living God had actually named Cyrus by name decades before he was born, that he would be the one that would issue the decree to send the children of Israel back into Israel to to build the temple. And he did that. And we saw that as we began our study in Ezra and working our way through that. Well, Ahasuerus is the grandson of Cyrus. He's ruling at this particular time. He had a had a wife that we were introduced to briefly last time who refused to do something. And again, we, we talked about that, that, you know, it was a ridiculous request that he had asked in a, at a drunken party for her to do, and she refused to do that. And because of that, he had her deposed. And then we were introduced to a couple of our other key players, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai and Esther, their cousins. Mordecai, much older than Esther, um, had had an agreement because Esther's parents both died. We don't know how, but they died in captivity. And Esther then was raised by Mordecai. An edict was sent out throughout the throughout the entire reign of Ahasuerus, the, all of the countries that he ruled over, that he was looking for a queen. They brought in all of these virgin girls, Esther being one of them, and she was chosen to be the next queen. And that's, that's where we, we left off last time. We need to be introduced to one more key player in our story, and we are introduced to him right away in chapter three. His name is Haman. And let's read a fir- the first few verses into chapter three, and we'll continue our study here. After these events that we just discussed, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamad- Hamadatha, and the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down or paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. 
but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. The celebration of a holiday amongst the Jewish people, perhaps you've heard of Purim. Purim comes out of the story here in Esther. And in our next verse, in a few minutes, we're going to see where even the word Purim comes from. But it is a celebration of the fact that God delivered the children of Israel from this plot that we just read about. This man, Haman, placed into authority by King Ahasuerus and raised up. We don't know anything about how he, was, how he got there. Did he work his way up? How he got to this point? But it's interesting. I think it's a little telling that the king had to command the people to pay him homage. <laughs> had to com- there had to be an edict command given out. You've got to respect this guy. I think that's telling. Respect should be earned and you shouldn't have to command people to say, hey, respect this guy. But that, that was the rule. He was placed basically second in command to Ahasuerus. And when word got back to him that, hey, this guy Mordecai won't bow down to you, he was too busy receiving accolades from everybody else to notice until somebody brought it to his attention. Then when he saw it, he was so angered by it that his anger went beyond just hating Mordecai. He said, I'm not, only, I'm not just going to kill this guy. I'm going to wipe out all of his people. And so God delivers them, and we're going to see that through, through our study of the book of Esther. We won't get that far tonight to the deliverance part, but just as, a, as the thing Purim, this holiday that is celebrated, still to this day, um, it's quite a festival. Uh, it's, it is, it's like I, I, the closest thing you could probably compare it to would be almost like a, a Jewish version of Mardi Gras. I mean, it is an all-out party. They dress up in costumes, almost like Halloween. If you want to Google that later and look at that, um, it's kind of interesting to see some of the things. And it's just this big party. Had the privilege one time in one of our trips to Israel to actually be there on Purim. And it was pretty fascinating to see all of the kids, especially running around in almost like you would say Halloween costumes, although not the scary ones. You know, somebody's like dressed up like a ketchup bottle and, you know, different things like that. One of the things that is very popular is to dress up like the characters in the story of Esther. Because one thing that is done twice on the evening of Purim and then on the day of Purim is to read the story of Esther. They all gather together. And they read the entire story. And one of the fun things that they all do is whenever the name Haman is mentioned, they all boo, you know, and they all make a whole bunch of noise trying to basically wipe his name out because they, he tried to wipe them out. They even write the name Haman on the bottom of their shoes and they stomp on the floor and just this whole thing. So that's the, that is the celebration of Purim because we're going to see That even though God, we mentioned this last time in the book of Esther, interesting, God is never mentioned in the entire book, but we see his hand everywhere. God delivers them, God delivers them supernaturally through this, and we'll study through that as well. But just as we as we see this this guy put into this place of authority, and we're gonna see obviously a man filled with pride and and very insecure, obviously. This guy 
has everything. He's second in command to the king. He's extremely rich. We're going to see that in a, in a few verses. He has everything, power, money. He, he has respect, even though it's commanded to be given to him. Yet there's one old Jewish guy who won't bow down to him, and he goes crazy with that. So much so he's so incensed that he is committed to wiping these people off the face of the earth. Interesting when we look at this and the authority, and again, that's one of the things that, that the world continually chases after, right? It's, it's recognition, power, money, possessions, all of those things, but power. And it's interesting when we look at power and we look at authority from a biblical standpoint, even after spending all the time that the, the disciples did with Jesus, they still struggled with understanding all of this and what it all meant to, to be in a, in a position of authority. You'll perhaps remember James and John had their mom go talk to Jesus and say, hey, see if you could work it out with him so that when he comes in to be, be in power, we can sit on his right and his left hand. And Jesus said, you don't have any idea what you're asking. But on the heels of that, all the other disciples were pretty upset that they were trying to go behind to, to, to butter up Jesus. But anyway, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, it says, but Jesus called them to himself, all of his disciples, and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. That's why they want the power, so that they can, they can rule over and they can lord it over. But Jesus says, it is not this way among you. And this is important to us as Christians because he's speaking to us as well. This is how it is to be with us. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Not, again, people, the, the world says you want to get to the top so that everybody serves you. Jesus says you want to get to the top, you serve everybody. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. And then he says this, verse 28 of Matthew 20, just as the son of man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He'll later say in chapter 23, verse 11, but the greatest among you shall be your servant and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. You want to exalt yourself? You will be humbled, and we're going to see that that will happen to our, our, our friend Haman. He's going to be humbled greatly in our story. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And again, Peter in Philippians says this to us, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our example of the supreme leader, again, the world says, I want to climb as high as I can. Get up as high as I can on the left. Guys, the king of the universe, almighty creator God, doesn't need to prove anything to anybody. 
King of kings and Lord of lords chose to become one of us. Again, I, this whole season, the, it's, it, and honestly, just in the last, it's just been in the last few years that it has just become such a, a big thing to me in this season. The incarnation. I mean, just to, just to focus in on that. The condescending step that Jesus made to become one of us is something we cannot begin to comprehend. I've used the illustration before, bear with me if you've heard it, but just imagine, I, this going back several years ago, we used to have the newcomer's dinners at our house. And it was after one particular dinner and full of the, the chicken scraps and the potato salad and everything in a, in a trash bag that I had. It was dark over by our trash can. So I threw it over there and I thought it went in the trash can. It didn't. It went over the trash can, behind the trash cans, and I didn't know it had fallen down there and it fall, and it broke open. About a week and a half, two weeks later, and this is like in June. But what in the world is that smell over there? And finally, I go over to investigate and I found out what the problem was. And when I tried to grab the bag and pull it, it, it tore. And there was, there was a pile of maggots in that bag that was just, yeah, yeah. And the smell, I mean, it was just like, I mean, that gag reflex that's going. And bottom line, those, those maggots are going to die. Would, what would it be like to be all of a sudden so overcome with compassion for those maggots that I said, I, I need to figure out how to save them. And no matter how I try to talk to them, they're not going to understand. No matter what I try to do, no matter what try to message I try to give to them, they're not going to get it. The only way it's going to work is if I become one of them. Knowing, knowing that when I do and I get the message to them, they're going to kill me. Guys, the condescending step that Jesus made to become one of us is infinitely greater than me becoming one of those maggots. That blows me away. And yet that is the example that we're given to humble ourselves. And if we want to be used by God, even again in leadership, when I talk to, when I talk to people about taking on positions of authority within the church, pastors, elders, ministry leaders, it is, it is not about status. It is about service. Elders, pastors, leaders, that we are, we are here to serve the body, not, not get to a level of status. And that's what Jesus is saying. And again, he is our example. And we see godly examples of, of two in particular, similar positions of this man, Haman, who were placed into second in command in, the, in their countries. Remember back in Genesis, we're told the story of Joseph, right? Pharaoh makes him second in command. And what does he use that position for? To bless. I mean, even when his brothers came, the ones that wanted to kill him, he could have done away with them. No questions asked. And yet he understood God put him in that position to not only rescue his brothers, but to save, to save the, the nations during this famine. What 
and he said it, what you guys intended for evil, God meant for good. I get it. And I'm here to serve you and to serve the people. Another one, Daniel. Same time frame, just a little bit earlier than our story going on here. Rose to that level with King Nebuchadnezzar and those other kings. And he didn't use that as a power trip to get back at all of those that tried to have him killed and all of this other kind of stuff, but used it to serve. Humble men of God versus a proud man of the world. This guy... (laughs) This guy really checks all of the boxes in Proverbs 6. It tells us there are six things that the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty or proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brethren. Haman checks all the boxes. And we're going to see that as we continue. But before we do... I just thought it was, it was interesting, and I think it's worth at least parking here for just a quick moment, because right away we see, you know, and we can almost put Mordecai in this place of, you know, well, good for him. He wouldn't bow down. He wouldn't pay homage. And while I am not, please, I'm going to put this disclaimer right up front. I am not saying that there's anything wrong with what he did. But the Bible doesn't tell us why he didn't. And there's nothing wrong with giving respect and and even to the point of bowing down to someone in that position, in that culture, in that time. In Genesis, we see that Abraham bowed down, used the same words, bowed down to a Gentile. Abraham was the only Jew at the time, (laughs) but bowed down to to men of the world when he was buying the the land in order to have Sarah buried in it. We see that Jacob bowed down, same word, bowed down to Esau. We even see that David bowed down, same words, to King Saul, paying respect. There was nothing sinful in that. There was nothing wrong in that. Now, there's a lot of ideas as to why why he did, and I guess that's not my point. I'm not trying to necessarily question Mordecai in this. My my point, I guess, to us is we have to be very careful because we could say, well, Mordecai did it, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up to that. I'm not going to do that. We're going to get there very quickly in a couple of weeks, should the Lord tarry. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which are and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Paul is very clear, speaking to the church in Rome, that government, people that are placed in authority over us, aren't there because God God was like, oh no, they got elected. It, nothing happens without, again, God understanding, God ordaining that. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate, you wouldn't have any power unless it was given to you. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Submit yourselves. What does that mean? The same thing it means in chapter 3, verse 1, guys. 
when it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. We love to, tell, we love to quote that verse, don't we? But then when it comes to those placed over us in authority, oh, wait a second. Hang on. Verse 15 says, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Honor the king. Must have been a really good godly king that he was talking about, right? No, guess who was king at that time? Nero. The one who would get to the point where he was using Christians as human torches in his garden. And again, so how do we, how do we deal with that? Well, bottom line, I mean, again, Jesus, it's not that it's, it's silent when, it, when it's spoken to of this. Because it, Jesus says, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and under God the things that are God's, right? I mean, Jesus said that. I guess bottom line when it comes to, and I don't want to belabor the point, but I think it's important, is that we need to make sure that it's not a personal prejudice, that it's a, that it's a, a biblical issue that we're taking a stand on. I have heard and I've seen a whole lot of things that are promoting civil disobedience, if you would, from a Christian perspective. And I question where, okay, could you show me a verse for that? Because bottom line, we are to stand up. And even to the point, both Paul and Peter, the ones who authored that, gave up their lives because they would not render to Caesar the things that are God's. And that, absolutely, we need to understand that. They were not calling, you know, again, it's not saying here to bow down and worship that or to fall in line with these different things. I mean, we see many examples of godly men and women who gave their lives during during the Nazi rule in Germany and that type of thing, because they would not bow down and submit to what the government was saying then. I don't think it's a real fine line, I guess is my point. And I think a lot of times many Christians use that covering to say, okay, I'm not going to submit to this or I'm not going to do that. We live in a pretty politically charged environment, in case you didn't see that. <laughs> and bottom line is Christians, we need to be ones that, again, Peter, as Peter pointed out, that they would see our behavior as something that's different. Yeah, not submitting to ungodly things. Absolutely never. Never, never rendering unto Caesar the things that are God's. But also not getting to that point where we're standing out and being obstinate. That make sense? I hope so. Well, Again, we don't know that about Mordecai. That's not my point here at all. As a matter of fact, I believe, again, as we'll see as the story lays out, Mordecai, a very godly man. Many believe that it was because he's of the descendants here of, of, of Haman, where he came from and that type of thing, but it doesn't tell us, so we won't draw any further conjecture. Anyway, he has this plan, again, not to just deal with Mordecai, but because his, he is so filled with hatred and... And anything anti-Semitic, especially to this point, again, anything with that is bottom line, satanic. It's right from hell. Because again, the devil knows if he can disrupt that, they're the chosen people of God, the Messiah going to come through that line. This is, this is devil satanic right here. His whole plan to, his plan is to wipe them out. When it's saying to destroy throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, 
Israel is in the kingdom of Ahasuerus. So that's his plan, wiping out Jerusalem, wiping out the Jews everywhere. Verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, right there is where we get Purim, that is the lot that was cast before Haman. Hey, there you go. One guy got it. Let's do that again. We can all get it out of our system. The lot that was cast before Haman. All right. (laughs) All right. From day to day and from month to month until the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. What it, what this verse is saying is that they gathered, he gathered together his sorcerers because anytime that you're doing stuff like this, again, they're very, even though not godly, not the, the true and living God, they were very superstitious. Um, and so they would call together their sorcerers. So he's saying, here's the plan. When should we do this? And they're casting these lots and trying to you know, figure this out. And bottom line is, it is the month of Adar, which is the 12th month, basically almost a year later. Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but, it is, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The dice are loaded. God's gonna, God put this out a year out. Now, he didn't stop it, but he, God was in control of the timing. I wonder, if, I wonder how Haman's reaction was. I mean, he's thinking maybe next week, you know, or whatever. And then, okay, well, it's not next week. All of a sudden, and then planning all the way. Wow, okay. Wonder what that's about. Must, a lot of time to plan. Who knows? But God's going to move in that time frame. Then Haman the, said to, okay, just once. We'll never get through it now. It takes them all night to do this in Israel, but... Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all the other people and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put it into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. Then the scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province and the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each person according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa, And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Again, no doubt, satanically inspired the rage that is within Haman. 
the letter. He's the one that gets to sit down. The king hears this half-truth, exaggeration. We'll get to that in a second. But when he hears that, he's going, okay, yeah, you know what? Sounds like a good idea. Here's my ring. Basically, with that ring, Haman can do whatever he wants. Because whatever is written, whatever is sent out is sealed with the king's ring. That means it's just like the king said it. And look at verse 13 again. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. This was sent out throughout the entire province to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. Again, just the, you just hear the, the passionate hatred. It's not enough to, to kill them, destroy them, annihilate them, all of them, young and old, women and children, in one day. We're going to do this in one day. We're going to wipe them all out and then take all of their stuff. Again, just the, the hatred. The half-truths, exaggerations that are given. Was he lying when he says that they have laws that are different than all other people? No, he wasn't lying. But was he lying and exaggerating when he said they won't follow the, the, the king's laws? Yeah. Just because, just because one elderly Jewish man won't bow down to Mordecai, he says all of them won't obey your laws. The problem with half-truths and exaggerations is they greatly influence the way people think of other people. Unfortunately we as human beings have, have this tendency within us to believe what we hear without checking it out. You know, that's why we have a law in our country that you're innocent until proven guilty because our human nature is you're guilty until proven innocent. Just based on what we hear, based on on what we might read anywhere. I mean, that's why. And I, I, I'll, well, it has to be true. It's on the internet. And you laugh because you've heard that before. And you know that very little that's on the internet is, is verifiably true. I mean, it's just crazy. There's people that held to no standards. They can just say whatever they want to say. And here based on this one statement by this one man, the king says, yeah, go ahead. And no doubt, he can't be thinking that it's a people as large as the Jewish people. There's estimates at this time that there were as many as 15 million Jews at the time. I mean, it, he, no doubt he must be thinking this must be sm some small uprising that's popping up here and there but he doesn't bother to fact check. <laughs> he doesn't bother to get any more information. And his, he's totally influenced by that and he believes it. And so he and Haman sit down to drink. Notice it says the city of Susa was in confusion. And it's interesting when we look at today's environment in the world today, not much has changed, especially when it comes to the way people look at the Jewish people. It doesn't matter whether what is said is true or not. It influences the way the world looks at Israel. It's amazing to me to watch the news and how the world 
views Israel. I happen to have a very good friend of mine who is a Jew who lives in Israel and on trips over there and spending a lot of time with him and, to, and then myself studying history. It's amazing to see and to hear the way the world looks. Guys, here's, here, here's the fact. There is no cycle of violence in Israel with the Arab people right now. Israel wants to be at peace. It's, it's their Palestinian terrorist neighbors that, that live alongside them, live in the bordering areas right now that are the instigators every single time that are firing rockets in, that are sending suicide bombers in, that are doing all of that. They simply reply, respond in self-defense. And when they go into these villages where the terrorists come out of and they, they, they have to blow up a building or they have to shoot up an area because the, they've holed up as snipers in, in areas shooting at civilians using, using their own people as human shields, then all of a sudden the world looks at Israel as the bad guys. Picking on the poor, their poor neighbors. This whole refugee crisis, the Arab refugee crisis, the facts are in 1948, they were living side by side. And the Arab countries around them that hated the fact that Israel has now been declared a nation told all of their, all of their, their people, all of the Arabs, hey, get out. We're all going to come in and we're going to wipe them off the planet. Then you can move back in. So you guys come out, leave your homes, leave your property, leave all of that. And in a, in a couple of days, we will decimate them. We're going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And then you can move back. Problem, Israel won the war. So what are we going to do with all of these refugees who left their homes and went to these other countries? You would think then the, that those Arab nations that said you come out of there would let them assimilate in. No, 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 no. They, they wouldn't let them into their countries. Oh, and by the way, they kicked all of their Jewish people out of their countries. And guess what Israel did? Oh, you can come. They took care of their own. But now the world looks at, you know, and again, pointing at Israel. Oh, you wicked, bad, bad, bad. They're looked at as the oppressors. As the one, again, the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, has strict rules of engagement when it comes to going into civilian populated areas. Again, the enemies of Israel are the ones using their own people as human shields. The, the, the terrorists are holding up women and children in front of them as they're shooting at Israeli soldiers. And again, the world would be shocked. Most of the world would be shocked to know that Arab Israelis, that people live in Israel that are Arab, have the same rights as Jews do. They serve in parliament. They're protected by the same law. As long as, you know, hey, we want to live peaceably together. Some of my friend, his name is Steve. He's the tour guide that we use over there. Some of his good friends that he does, he works out with, he does things with, everything, are Arabs. They don't have any hostilities towards each other or anything at all like that. I mean, it's just, and Israel is totally open to it. But it's the, it's the ones that want to wipe them off the face of the earth that when Israel responds again, 
against them, they're viewed as the bad guys. And it's just accepted as fact that Israel is the aggressor, Israel is the, the oppressor. Susa's in confusion. Guys, the world is in confusion. Because if you've researched the facts and you look at this and you study history, You'll be confused like them. You'll be like, well, wait a second. When the law goes out from Haman, and they're the, this, the, can you imagine when the edicts came to these villages and they're living side by side with these Jewish people and it says on, you know, on the 13th day of 11 months from now, you're supposed to kill them because they're a bunch of radicals. They, they don't obey the king's rules. They, they hate us, you know, all this other kind of stuff. And they're saying, wait a second. That's not my neighbor. That's not, that, that doesn't describe, you know, so they're in confusion. And anyone who studies history will be in confusion too. And I know I've gone off on a rabbit trail here, but I'm a little, a little passionate about it because, guys, it's, 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 it's unbelievably untrue the way Israel is painted in the UN and, and in the world news and everywhere. I encourage you to check the facts and read the history yourself. Well, chapter four, <laughs> When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. So he hears that this has gone out. And again, there's no secret about it. This has been sent out through all the provinces. He hears about it. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. You, we talked about this when, when we were talking about Nehemiah. No one would go, into, go in front of the king mourning or upset or sad. I mean, the king had this virtual reality around him that all, everybody's happy, everything's fine, everything's good. So that's, he couldn't go in there at, with, when he's upset as he was and mourning this. So he stops there. In each and every province where the command and the decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the, the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to, garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Now, Esther is mourning because of what she's hearing is going on with Mordecai. She doesn't know that this edict has gone out yet. She doesn't, she's not privy to that information. We're going to find that out. But she just hears of this that's going on, and she's like, my goodness, if, if it's found out that Mordecai is doing this, he could get in a lot of trouble. So get, send him this clothes, get, it, get him all taken care of. But he refused it. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her. So this Hathak, one of the eunuchs, is basically her guardian, the one who watches over her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of the money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. I forgot to mention that. Remember, it says back in the, in the verse, uh, verse 9, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands. Again, extra biblical sources. This is from a Greek historian. I mean, back many, many, many years ago, before Christ, recording events from this time frame. 
said that the annual income from taxes at the time because of their current financial situation was 15,000 talents of silver. He's saying, I'll basically pay two-thirds of the annual, <laughs> the annual revenue of the, of the country. I'll pay. Again, he's that passionate about this. A very wealthy man, but he's saying, I'll, take, I'll, I'll personally fund the operation and whatever's left over we'll put into the king's coffers. So Mordecai hears about all of this and sends this information back. He also gave him a copy of the text. He didn't know they had texting back then, but of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction. Must have been on his eye stone. that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to employ his favor, implore his favor and to plead with him for her. So he, she comes out with this message to find out what's going on. Mordecai is sending her back all of the information, including a copy of the letter back to her that she might see it. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people in the king's provinces know that for any man or woman to come into the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words. To Mordecai. So this back and forth, Mordecai could not come in as a man. He couldn't go into where Esther was. So Esther sends her, her servant back and forth. So they have this back and forth relay going on. And it's interesting when I thought about that earlier, because when I was reading up on, on Purim and they talked about how, you know, many dress up as the characters in the story and everybody wants to be Esther or Mordecai or King Ahasuerus, you know, and, that, and that's just kind of like our nature, right? I, I want to be that guy. I want to be that one. I want to be used. And let's take it out of the acting piece of it. I want to be used by God in that way. I want to be a Mordecai. I want to be an Esther. How about I want to be a Hathak? I want to be somebody that can be trusted with a message to, to, to be brought back and forth. I want to be somebody that maybe isn't out there getting all of the publicity, all of the, the, the people I'll see in, but, but a trustworthy person. How important is Hathak in this story? If Esther says, go, go find out what's going on with Mordecai, Mordecai tells him and he comes back and he tells a completely different story. Uh, he's just upset because of whatever, you know, everything, this takes a whole totally different turn. And I think sometimes we, we can get caught up in trying to be that person or that person, the one that gets the most. I didn't read anywhere that said that, that kids love to dress up as Hathak. But God uses. Us. God uses Hathaks. <laughs> and I think sometimes if we're willing to say, God, just use me, however, be amazing to see. And God records that. Again, his name's mentioned here. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Verse 10 Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, All the king's servants 
and the people of the king's provinces know that if anyone comes in, she can't go in. She can't just enter into, into the king, even though she's the queen. No one can go to the king uninvited. If you show up, you could be immediately killed. And she said, unless he extends the golden scepter, that means that you may live and approach the king. So that word then is Esther then sends that back to Mordecai. And there's, I guess, different ways you could look at that. We could, we could say, well, is she, is she trying to be scared from this? Is, is that she's trying to tell Mordecai something he doesn't know? Or is it just this, help me, help me process this, this thing. And again, you, Mordecai is like her father figure, if you would. Because again, both of her parents had died by this point. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. He just brings back this to her and says, you know, as you're processing this, don't think that just because you're the queen, you're going to be fine. It will be discovered that you are a Jew and the law has been sealed. All Jews die. And the thing about the law at that time, the, the Medes and the Persians, once it is issued, even the king himself cannot retract the law. So his point is, don't think, don't think that you could skate away with that. And I don't think he's chastising her in that. Again, it's just like, let's get all the cards on the table and think through this. But I love, and again, this, this tells me that Mordecai is a man of great faith. He believes the promises of God. Because notice what he says. If you remain silent, release a, or relief and deliverance will arrive for the Jews. It's going to come, but from another source. God is going to take care of this problem. Jews may die in the process, but he will not allow his people to be destroyed. I don't know how he's going to do it. Bottom line with it, he's saying to Esther, God's going to move. God's going to do something. Is he going to use you? Or is he going to use somebody else? And that's where, again, we need to hold on to the promises of God. We need to know that God is a faithful God. And we need to walk in faith following a God who is always faithful. It just drew me to be thinking about, as I was thinking through that, you know, again, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, in particular, speaking of the faith of Abraham in verse 17 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son, the only son of promise. And it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Verse 19, he considered, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he was also to receive him back as a type. Bottom line, Abraham has this son of promise, Isaac. And God said, through Isaac, the descendants will be innumerable. 
But here now is a problem because God is now calling Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice before he has any, Isaac has any children. But Abraham in faith is going forward with that. And it says, because he figures God's a man of his word. God's a God of his word. He's a faithful God. He must going to raise him from the dead. If, if we go through with this, there's no reference of a resurrection ever before. He's not, he has no point of reference for that. He's just saying, God's going to have to do something. If, we go, if I go forward with this, as he's commanded me for do, to do, God's going to have to do something miraculous. And that's what Mordecai is saying here. God's going to do it, but is he going to use you or is he going to use somebody else? And I don't know if you've ever felt this way before. I have personally, I've been in situations before where I know God has called, but telling me to do something in particular one time to go and witness to somebody. I was, I was in a, on a van shuttle ride home from the airport like 10, 12 years ago. And I was alone in the, in the shuttle with the driver and another guy up front. I was sitting in the seat behind him and they were talking about things and it was so teed up. It couldn't have been teed up any easier for me to jump in with the gospel. And I could tell God was prompting me to say something. And I remained quiet. And I beat myself up for that for so long. And bottom line, guys, they were going to hear the gospel. Those two were going to hear it. God just gave me an opportunity to share first. Because I didn't doesn't mean they didn't hear the gospel. God is faithful. God is going to give them that opportunity. You and I aren't that powerful to thwart God's plans. But God gives us the opportunity to partner with him, to be involved with him. And bottom line is he gives us an opportunity to receive the blessing that he desires to give us if we will simply be obedient. Same thing here with Esther. And this is what Mordecai is saying. God is giving you an opportunity. Who, well, he says, who knows? God does. But who knows? You're, you're, you perhaps are queen for just this time. Do you ever think about that? That... Here's this orphan Jewish girl who has very little chance of becoming much of anything other than a slave. And here she is, the queen. The sovereign, providential hand of God orchestrating all of this. I think when Mordecai says, who knows? He's like, yeah. You weren't here just to look pretty. You were here for this purpose. And God has a plan. God has a purpose. And guys, that should promote courage in us. When we feel called and led to, to do something for the Lord, when we call let, when we're led to step out in faith and witness to somebody or to step out in faith in a ministry, or perhaps God is calling you to step out in faith to go to the mission field or to do something like that. And you're like, oh, and you have, have this fear. God's plan should give you courage. The fact that God is a providential God should give you courage to step out in faith, to follow what it is that God is calling you to do. Is there anything in your life in your past that you could go back and change if you would? If you'd go back and change it, if you could. Could it be that God allowed all of that for just a time as this? I, there's, there's many things that I look back on in that. 
if I did, if I, 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 I wish those prodigal years that I had gone through, I could go back and I could say, you know what, I wish I was following the Lord fully from that day on, you know, and, and it wouldn't. But you know what? It was those decisions that God took, even though they weren't godly decisions, and no, nor am I saying, you know, chase after whatever you want because God will make it work out in the end. But he was faithful to use all of those things. If I had done different things, I probably wouldn't be here right now. I probably wouldn't be married to my wife. I wouldn't have the children that I have, you know, all those types of things. But wrong rabbit trail. Back over here. God uses all of those things to bring us right where we are now. Don't spend one more moment thinking about, I wish I could change that. For such a time as this, you are not here in Surprise, Arizona. 2017 by accident. We're living in the times that we're living in. God chose us to be here now. I believe we're living in the end times. We're living in the last days. I mean, you look at the way things are lining up and I know people say, oh, you Christians always say that. Okay, whatever. Things are lining up. Things are happening right now. We could be that last generation right here, right now. And God allowed us to be here now. I, it ever cro- cross your mind? I just want to be where God can use me. You are. You are right now, right here, right where God can use you and will use you if you let him. Just grow where you're planted. Don't don't ask for a transplant. Grow where you're planted. It's interesting because God told the Jewish people in Jeremiah 29, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, all of them, in whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become fathers and sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare and you will have welfare. Grow where you're planted. I mean, look at what's happening here for, with, with Esther and with, with Mordecai and how God is using them in this situation for such a time as this. Don't lose sight of that. Own that verse, guys. Who knows? Who knows that you haven't attained right where you are right now for such a time as this? The neighborhood you live in, the job you have, the whatever situation you're in for such a time as this. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Interesting, I mentioned last time, nowhere in the book of of Esther do we see the Lord mentioned and nowhere do we see prayer mentioned. 
Here we see, she says, go back and fast. Don't eat anything or drink anything for three days. And no doubt that included prayer. It wasn't just, a, let's, let's go on a crash diet real quick for three days. No doubt it was, let's, let's humble ourselves before the Lord. Let's seek him. And it's amazing, again, that part of our human nature, even as Christians, that when, when crisis hits, that's when we say, hey, let's all get together and pray. Let's all, let's all gather together. Let's even, you know, even send it out to, let, let's, would you fast and pray with me over this when a crisis situation comes? When, 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 when 9-11 happened, prayer meetings were packed. And when, when crisis hits in a family, then it's time, it's time to let's get together and pray. Let's gather together and pray. Guys, let's, let's, let's consider this again for such a time as this, where God has us, let's, let's be praying and seeking the Lord together for, for what he has for us. Now I encourage you, I'm going to have to cut that a little bit short, but power of prayer. We're going to see as it, as it moves forward, please read ahead. Um, chapter five and following we'll pick up there, there next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We thank you for who you are, the sovereign King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the ruler of the universe. And Lord, again, at this time of year, we celebrate the fact that though you need nothing, you are everything. You chose to step out of glory and become one of us. Lord, we will never be able to put into any type of understanding that step that you took down to us. And then to humble yourself even more to the point of death, death on a cross, death, our death. You died instead of us, Lord, so that we could have life and life eternal. Lord, we thank you so much. We praise you for that. Lord, we also thank you for the fact that you have entrusted us to be here now. Lord, we pray that, that we would embrace as we study this story, that we would embrace the courage that they took, that we see in Esther, that we see in Mordecai, Lord, that we would see, Lord, that you call us to be courageous in this time, but not in our own strength, in the strength that you give us, in the understanding that we know that, that we are filled with your spirit, and we, again, are here right now for a reason, for a purpose, for your purpose. So use us, Lord. Guide us and direct us, especially in this season that we're in right now, where people have a tendency to be a little bit more sensitive to things, Lord, that we would be bold in sharing the truth of this season. Have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week.